Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Off-season show number 27. It's Tuesday, May the 17th. I think you guys know what year it is, but I suppose I could say it. 2022, this is Fantasy NBA Today, a sports ethos presentation. And I am your host, Dan Bespris. We have a playoff game tonight, lo and behold. Very quick turnaround for the Boston Celtics after beating Milwaukee in Game 7 on Sunday, just yesterday off. They're in Miami, Heat favored by two with a total, paltry total, of 204. Yeesh. We're going to break down that ball game, see if we can find anything. It's tough. Game 1s of a series, they're always tough unless you got something you're working off of. Game ones are tough. That total's been falling like a boulder. Opened at 207.5. It's as low as 203.5 at some places. Oddly enough, line actually moved toward the Celtics. He'd opened as a four-point favorite. Little surprised to see that thing shift the other way, given Boston with their seven-game set with Milwaukee. Grueling effort. We also have some more D-bombs. The Dan Bespris Old Man Squad will try to polish off the rest of that list on today's episode. Try to keep it around a half an hour. That's kind of what we've been doing lately anyway. So let's dive on in. First things first. 203 and a half at some places. 203 and a half. It's been, you know, oddly enough, the money's been relatively split. I would have told you at 207 and a half to probably keep an eye out for an under. Because what goes? When a team is super tired, what goes? Jump shots and defense. But which thing counterbalances the other harder? Which way does that scale tip? Does Boston's inability, presumably, to hit three-pointers, because that's pretty much what Milwaukee was daring Boston to do, does that weigh harder on the outcome of this ballgame than what I assume are going to be relatively tired legs for the Celtics in keeping up with a brand-new team's offense. I don't want to take anything away from Boston defensively. They've been unbelievable, best team in the league defensively for about four months now, and you don't get to this point without that being your calling card. I do think it's going to be pretty tough. They had one day... They had one day to try to prepare for a new team while gassed. So, believe it or not, and this feels almost like borderline sacrilegious to say, the line may now be low enough where the value pivots back into an over. Sometimes first games of a series, they do go over. Teams kind of fire their best punch sort of deal. Miami-Philadelphia, that was a very slow series. I think that there's a bit of a, of a misconception that Miami wants to be the, the slow team that they've kind of been to this point. It's been more, let's say, not by design, it's been more by circumstance than anything else. Miami's a really good defensive team. They're not the slowest team in the NBA. That's not who they are. They're not fast. They're not, like, going to run you up and down the court, but... They've been kind of forced a couple of times. First, against Atlanta, 
they wanted to slow the game down a little bit by getting the ball out of Trey Young's hands, by turning him into more of a of a of a passenger. And so that series with Atlanta was not super high scoring. Uh, the game where the Hawks actually got some shots to fall, that was a little bit higher scoring. But as far as pace goes, Miami was desperately trying to keep that thing closer to 100 possessions. Atlanta was trying to push it up faster than that. It just didn't really work. Miami was disciplined enough to do what they needed to do and make that series unfold the way they wanted it to unfold. Aside from basically one game. Atlanta scored 111. They beat Miami 111-110. Remember that? I think that was game four of that series. Or was it game three? I don't remember. It was a gentleman sweep when all was said and done. That game had a few extra possessions. That was more like... Uh, well, Miami out-rebounded them by nine. So he'd actually had more opportunities in that ball game. They were like up around 115. And Atlanta was lower than that. They just happened to shoot the ball really well. So that one was more like, you know, 215, 220 combined possessions, where the other games were more like between 205, 210. Series two for Miami, they were actually trying to be the team that sped things up a little bit, but Philly, everything they did was slow. Joel Embiid through the post, that's, that's a slow way to get a series going. And it worked out fine. Miami was able to deal with it because we've seen they're capable of playing a slower series. But, like, if you look at the games that were in Miami, was that game one? Was was May 2nd? Was that the first game of that series? Miami and Philadelphia? I think that was game one. Miami won at 106-92. Not because the game was so painfully slow, but because the, the teams didn't shoot very well, for one. But the game itself was actually not that outrageously boggy. You know, Miami had 92 field goal attempts in that ball game. 92! That's a pretty big number. They played again on Wednesday of that week. Miami had 78 field goal attempts, but 31 free throws. So that, again, sort of weighed that out. It was not as slow of a series in Miami, at least, certainly earlier in that series, than it seemed. Now, when the series pivoted back to Philadelphia, the Sixers did what they were supposed to do, which was really grind it to a halt, use Embiid, because remember, Joel missed the first two games of that series, and that allowed things to to get going a little bit. The second game in Philadelphia was a higher-scoring game, but it was also pretty slow still. It was just that teams made their shots, there were a lot of free throws, and again, how do we get there? It's not what's the number, it's how do we get there. So Miami's numbers in this postseason have been weighed down a little bit by what they've wanted to do or what they've been pulled into doing. Boston's going to try to slow this thing down. Make no mistake. That's their goal. Turn it into a half-court game and make another team beat you in the half-court. Miami's better in the half-court than Milwaukee, which is a weird thing to say because Milwaukee offensively overall is probably a more dangerous team, but Miami has the spacing has a guy who has sort of multiple levels he can attack at to deal with that a little bit better. Boston can be a bit more uh, traditional in the defensive sense. They don't have to, you know, wall off the paint for Giannis. It's a different kind of thing. But Giannis does have that one fatal flaw, which is as soon as he takes a jump shot, you've won. And he got huge numbers throughout the series, but Milwaukee really didn't. They really needed Chris Middleton, someone who could actually shoot a basketball. 
because it wasn't there. Miami has shooters, and they'll mix and match until they find them. This is going to be a good series. Game one here, ultra, ultra low total. I do think it has a chance to creep up and over. I think that the fatigue element is actually going to impact defenses a little bit more. There's just not going to be that same hyper-intensity at the front end of the ball game. You're going to see the teams get out, get loose a little while they're feeling each other out. And then the only question is, will the shots actually go down? Will the teams hit some buckets? If Miami hits a few buckets, Boston's going to be sort of forced to keep up a little. And then you'll have a decent high-scoring, probably second quarter would be my hope, first and second quarter. Maybe get this game to about... I don't know, 108, 109 at halftime would be swell. And then as the second half kicks in and things do hit the half court a little more, then you just hope that it creeps up and over just barely. Just barely. But you know me. I hate betting overs anyway, so I'm probably just going to watch it and say, "Eh, I thought this one might go over, and then we'll see what happens to it. As far as the side goes, I, I mean, I'd have to look at Miami basically just fading a team. Plus, right now... Everyone is calling Boston the title team, effectively. You're seeing a lot of Boston-Dallas going to be in the finals stuff because people are reacting to what they've just seen. And admittedly, they saw really good series wins for the Mavericks, toppling the top-seeded Suns in seven games. They saw Boston beat the defending champs. By the way, it's worth remembering, Boston was the higher seed in that battle with Milwaukee. The Bucks had championship hangover. They didn't play for home court, and it probably burned them a little bit although they lost games at home anyway. So yeah, people just saw Boston, a team that for some reason people felt like they were an underdog. They were uh, they were betting favorite in that series. They were supposed to win it. It just sort of happened in a weird way by being down 3-2 to two and then winning the last two ballgames. But, however, it doesn't matter what was supposed to happen. What people are reacting to is a win that they thought wasn't coming when Boston trailed three games to two. So Boston has this big lift from public dollars right now, which they didn't have during the regular season. That was when we got in on that crazy 25-1 to Boston to win the Atlantic bet, which is still probably the smartest thing that I've ever said on a podcast. And people are reacting over on the Dallas side. So uh, to that end, I think people are still underrating the heat a little bit. I also think Boston's going to be uh, more tired than people think. Dallas at least has a couple days to recover. I think they'll be impacted by it as well. Uh, But at least they can prep a little bit. Pretty different opponents for these two teams. Dallas has to deal with the Steph offense. Offense that revolves around that. Boston has to deal with Miami, which is much more about floor spacing as opposed to steam train Giannis, which is a, a pretty effective steam train. So lean to the over, lean to the heat here in game one tonight. And we move along. By the way, you can follow me on Twitter, at Dan Bespris. You guys know all that stuff by now. I'm not even sure I need to say it during these off-season shows, but damn it, I am. So, whatever. Um, once again, please do check out our new baseball and football feeds. I know you guys know about the basketball feed. It's Ethos Fantasy BB for baseball. Ethos Fantasy FB for football. I expect to see some Twitter follows happen on those accounts today that's going to be you guys you're going to make that happen i'm expecting it i'm waiting on it i'll keep i'll i'll watch carefully and then i'm gonna be like okay cool you guys actually did it that's what i'm asking you to do then you'll see when the pods drop you'll see the hosts 
Their names will be tagged and stuff. That's how you'll know what's going on in these two sports that we're wading into here. And keep clubbing you over the head with it until you do it. So it's in your best interest to just do it, and then I can club you less. Yesterday, we left off after Mikel Bridges on the Dan Bashmer's Old Man Squad. I wanted to leave a good taste in everyone's mouth because we had a couple of really nice hits in that fifth, sixth round range. JJJ, Bridges, and then things pivoted a little bit because my sort of late 100 ADP guys were Draymond Green, who I actually thought was on his way to turning things around and having a really good season. Defensively, he was much more locked in, but he was hurt most of the year, so miss. Derek White. Couldn't get a shot to fall in San Antonio for a while. Then he kicked it into high gear, and then he got traded. So, yeah, that one didn't work either. That's a shame, because he has a really good fantasy game, but as the backup to the backup to the backup, whatever you want to call it, uh, it's just not going to happen. Um, where did he finish? Let me make sure I get the numbers right on where he finished on a per-game basis. It wasn't like it was a complete and, and total epic disaster. He was number 86 on a per-game basis, White was. And he played in 75 games this year. So to that end, he actually was, I think he was number 52 by totals on the year. So by that metric, he was actually a hit. And I had his totals rank at 54, uh, and his ADP was 73. So, you know, I guess you could call that a, a small win? I don't know. There's something about it that doesn't feel like a win. Because my thought with Derek White was that his per-game was going to be in the mid-50s, and he was going to miss like 12 or 13 games. Instead, his per game was a round or two back of that, but his durability was much better. And that's not what I was looking for in my seventh round pick. I wasn't looking for the durable seventh rounder. I was looking for a maybe slightly less durable fifth rounder. That's why to me it feels like a miss, even though the numbers suggest it actually was a two-slot hit. Make of that what you will. Fact is, things were going really well right before he got traded. Then he just didn't have the same role in Boston. Oh, well. Another guy who kind of had a similar path uh, or, or similar, definitely an opposite path. Uh, but as far as a season arc goes and why it's going to feel like a disappointment is Norman Powell, who uh, we had on the D-bombs as with an ADP of 88... So uh, now we're into the eighth round, and that one was well on its way to being an easy winner, and then he got hurt. By totals, he's nowhere to be found because he played in 45 games. By averages, he was in the mid-80s, even after a handful of games with the Clippers where he didn't have the same role. So this is a guy who was coasting along as a mid-70s per-game guy, got hurt, blew the whole thing up. My per game for him was 71, which was really close, but my totals rank for him was not even in the ballpark. So again, that one's not going to feel like a win. For Roto, you know, the games you got out of him were good, but eh, eighth round pick, you were still probably hoping for someone who played more than half the games in a given year. Folks, picture this nightmare scenario. You're hosting friends for the big game. It's neck and neck in the fourth quarter, and suddenly you realize you're out of drinks. Boo, say all of your friends. You start to sweat. Your friends turn on you. You're forced to go on a last-second drink run and end up missing the game-winning touchdown while in line. Oh, no. Terrifying, isn't it? Luckily, you can avoid the drama with Drizzly. 
the go-to app for drink delivery. With Drizzly, you can shop a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered right to your watch party. Compare prices across multiple stores in your area, find the best deals on game day drinks, and get back to armchair quarterbacking from, you guessed it, your armchair. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Must be 21 plus, not available in all locations. Uh, Andrew Wiggins is uh, much more of a head-to-head play because he's been very durable throughout his NBA career. It continued this year with 73 games, but number 123 by averages is not what you're looking for. 87 by totals, that's fine. Um... But this one was a miss. Uh, I thought he'd do better, especially with Klay Thompson out the first half of the year. But Jordan Poole just sort of slotted in and was better at the Warriors' offense. And so that one actually is a miss. Even if we want to call Derek White a small hit and Norman Powell like a weird injury miss or a when-healthy hit, Wiggins was a straight miss. And Kelly Olynyk was easily the biggest miss on this board because not his season, like you could point to a lot of stuff First of all, these guys are being drafted near 100, so it doesn't feel so bad, and the misses are going to be more common in this range. But, like, Draymond would have worked if he didn't get hurt. Uh, Powell would have worked if he didn't get hurt. So I don't feel as bad about those. And Norman Powell's not a guy who's out for half a season, typically. That's not something that we really could have handicapped for. Uh, but Olinick was just a straight miss. Now, Wiggins and Olinick, and that's, that's fine. Because these are guys that are getting drafted in the ninth round. Those guys, you're taking a shot and you're hoping for something, and it just didn't happen. But guess what? First of all, what we needed, lesson to be learned here. On the Wiggins front, I don't know that there was a really key lesson. He just wasn't as good as the previous year. The Olenek lesson is, if someone's not guaranteed minutes, you probably look a a different direction with anybody inside your first eight or nine picks, frankly. You gotta know that they're gonna be in there and playing, and we just didn't know. It seemed like he'd get 25, 26 minutes, but they gave him nothing at the power forward spot. Really, he was just straight backing up Isaiah Stewart early in the year, and that was crap. And then his one chance to have value uh, when Stewart was out, he was out too. Oh, well, that one was a bad handicap. Everybody on this list, we started yesterday, Michael Porter Jr., who somehow I got talked into, and then Kelly Olenek, who was just a terrible handicap. Those are the two that I'm really annoyed about. The other misses on this board, Adebayo injured, which, come on, that never happens. Rashawn Holmes, injury, mental stuff, Samotis acquired, blew the whole thing up. OG Ananobi, injured. Draymond Green, injured. Norman Powell, injured. Jimmy Butler, hurt. Not as catastrophic, but hurt. Most of the misses were injury-related. The ones that weren't, Rashawn Holmes was a lot of weird stuff rolled together. And then Andrew Wiggins just wasn't good, and Kelly Olenek wasn't good. Lesson to be learned here, at least on the ones that we handicapped straight wrong, was keep an eye out for the minute-per-game projection, that you can't talk yourself into more minutes than a guy is actually going to get. And then, like, a lot of these guys... 
you know, Jimmy Butler, there's an injury history there, but if you're picking at the turn, there aren't that many guys you can grab there that didn't have an injury history. Adebayo, fluky. Dude had been the healthiest player in the NBA aside from Mikael Bridges. That one was very difficult to see coming. And Anobi had been dinged up a bit lately. But Norman Powell, not really. I mean, Draymond, I guess, is getting a little bit older. Maybe we could have seen that one coming. But a lot of those ones were kind of out of nowhere. And then I had a category. Apparently, more of these guys needed to be in the second category of this list. The Dan Vespers Old Man Squad had a category I called the Risky Roto Guys, which is dudes you could take in a per-game format because you knew they were going to miss a good chunk, and it didn't matter to you. Kristaps Porzingis was the first one of those. Uh, His ADP was... 47, so end of the fourth round. I had him listed as a per-game 23, which is actually pretty damn close. He was 18 per game. And uh, I had him by totals very close, actually, to his ADP. I was like, all right, look, you're going to miss a bunch of time. How far back does he fall? He was 51 by totals. I had him... Uh, a little bit ahead of that in totals and a little bit behind that in per game. So he was slightly less durable even than we had predicted. But overall, that one was one we got pretty close to right, prediction-wise. From a Roto standpoint, him as a late fourth, early fifth actually was okay. He didn't hit his mark by totals, but you got these colossal second-round values out of him whenever he was on the floor. And sometimes that fits if you've gone really safe with your first three picks. Kemba Walker was the next one that was garbage. Uh, The Knicks offense was just so terrible that that one fell apart at the seams. Uh, Mike Conley was the next risky roto play. His ADP was 89. I had him listed per game at 60 and totals uh, at 78. His totals rank was 53. He was actually super durable this year. He played in 72 ball games, which was really awesome. Uh, Per game was 67. So nailed that one really, really close. Off by seven on the per game, actually undershot his totals by two rounds. That was a nice win also. And then, maybe the smartest thing I had on this whole list, eh, Chris Paul is up there, but Al Horford, ADP of 110. I had him listed per game at 81, totals by 87, and he bested those by a boatload. A boatload. His per game rank was 47 this year. His totals rank was 36. Just a monster, monster win with Big Al, who I thought was going to be a risky roto play. He ended up playing in 69 out of their 72 games, which is more than a lot of the guys that are supposed to be healthy. Phew, thank goodness for that one. So that area, which is sort of like the most traditional of the old man squad guys, old banged up dudes who were falling, Three out of the four of them worked out great. Uh, Porzingis wasn't great. Porzingis was fine. Walker was terrible. Conley and Horford were great. And then the after 100, uh, I called them upsiders because they didn't have to be all that old, but guys that I thought had a chance to bust through their ADP. This list, and I'll just rattle this one off. Daniel Gafford, Larry Nance, Mo Bamba, TJ McConnell, Daniel Tice, Danny Green, and DeAnthony Melton. I don't know what the hell Danny Green was doing on there. Uh, That one was really all about totals. He struggles to not beat his totals mark, but he was actually pretty hurt this year. Uh, Missed 20 ball games, so I I don't even know what the hell I was thinking there. Forget forget that one. 
Uh, I like DeAnthony Melton. Here's the thing. The problem with these picks is that they're never going to make sense. Melton played in 73 ball games, so pretty good durability. He was number 79 by totals, but there were a lot of games in there where he was great and a lot of games where he was awful. And you had to just use him where it made sense, on the Roto side in particular. This list is heavily geared towards Roto games cap. His ADP was 145. He ended up blowing that out of the water. So from that standpoint, this is an easy winner. But you really had to figure out when you were going to be dropping him into your lineup. The guy on this list that ended up being probably the easiest play was Mo Bamba, who I listed as I didn't think his body would, would stand up all season long. He was a guy that I was sad about because I talked about Bamba a lot at the end of last season. And then he was sort of coasting along, not really moving up the draft board until right at the very end. He started to get a whole lot of love because of a few big preseason games, and it ruined everything for me because he was going to be one of our big, big targets. Well, he finished at number 38 by totals. This guy that basically wasn't getting drafted until the last couple weeks before the season, 53 by averages in just 26 minutes per ball game. That was a nice win there. TJ McConnell would have been great this year because Malcolm Brogdon missed so much time, but he was also hurt, so that one into the toilet. And he didn't start the year well, so I don't want to like try to say everything would have been fine, but it would have been fine because all we had to do was wait out Brogdon's first injury. We couldn't. Larry Nance, too hurt again. It's the same stuff with him. It's always the same stuff with him. I'm always going to get suckered into trying because he's going to get drafted in the 11th, 12th round, and if it sticks for even 60 games, he beats his number. So I don't feel bad about that one. Uh, Daniel Gafford I listed as a first-half sensation. That actually worked out fine. He was in the top 85 range through the first half. As centers started coming back for Washington, he was droppable. That's what we thought was going to happen there. Uh, I thought Daniel Tice would get to play a little bit more in Houston. He didn't, but he was a last-round pick also. Fact of the matter is, um, I don't know how Gary Harris didn't, or Gary Trent didn't make it on this list because I drafted him almost everywhere. This was probably because this was the first draft of the Dan Vespers Old Man Squad, so that's what I wanted to grade it on. Gary Trent did end up making the, the after 100 plays. Didn't have Desmond Bain on there. That's, that's one that we overlooked. Luckily, Ryan Knauss came on the podcast and gave that one out during the preseason. Um, but as far as the after 100 guys that we talked about leading up to the season, one, two, three, basically eight if you add Gary Trent onto this list. Of those eight, Bamba, Melton, and Trent all worked out really well for the season, and Gafford worked out well for the first half. So that's pretty good. That's like four and a half out of eight of the really deep plays that ended up working out okay. Some of them better than that. The errors this year, in looking back sort of in total of this, the Dan Barrasper's old man squad, the errors were pretty well localized to guys that are normally a little bit more durable than they were this year. Bam Adebayo is one that's going to really stick in my craw. Trusted him as a second-round guy where I'm like, look, even if the per-game rank drops off, which it did, the totals rank will always be there. It did. It wasn't. Draymond, Hurt, Powell, Hurt, Holmes, weird stuff, Ananobi, Hurt, Adebayo, Hurt. What the lesson that Dan, me, what am I going to take out of this for next year? Dig a little bit deeper on some of the injury stuff. 
But at the same time, I also don't want to overreact. Because not like not all those guys are old. Adebayo's young. Ananobi's young. Holmes is young. Powell's still relatively young. Not old. He's like in we'll call it in between, like the original kitten mittens. You know, Chris Paul's old and he made it until the wrist thing, and then he came back in three weeks instead of eight or whatever it was. You could say, oh, well, the Dan Best was the old man squad. They're so old. That's why they miss all these games. The guys that missed most of the games were not the old guys on this list. This year was weird. Everybody missed so much time. You just had to catch lightning in a bottle. You needed JJJ and Mikel Bridges right from the middle of this list to be healthy for your team all damn season. And it's why, going back to one of the first lessons we talked about this offseason, the 10th category, durability, is something you must handicap for now. It's too big a deal not to. Tomorrow, uh, pretty cool stuff, actually. Over on the Fantasy Pass side, they're going to start putting out their post-mortems. I think they changed the name of those because that was a little bit dark. Uh, it's the season reviews. They're going to be going through every team in reverse order of record. So the worst teams will go first. They'll start with Houston. They'll work their way through the board. That'll actually be coming out on weekends as well. So that's seven days a week for the next 30 days. Uh, and we'll kind of work right along with them. So starting tomorrow, instead of going by division, we're going to parallel the fantasy pass as a nice way for me to give you like the taster and then they'll go a little deeper than I do. I'm Dan Vespers for Fantasy NBA Today. Half an hour. We got this figured out. We got this figured out. Half an hour on the nose. At Dan Vespers on Twitter. Again, please check out our MLB and NFL coverage. That's all I want from you throughout the offseason. Keep listening here and check those out. Even if just a Twitter follow for now. We'll get you. We'll get you. See it conking you over the head again with it. Have a great Tuesday, everybody. Back at you tomorrow. Same format, but team time. We got a lot of stuff we still need to break down from this last year, too. When the hell am I going to do it all? Oh, right. The next four months. Later, everybody. <laughs>